Y'all ready for this? Welcome, Dissidents. We're popping in to give you a little bonus content because the justices are writing dissents. Never fear. We are hard at work on the next full episode. But in the meantime, we hope you enjoy a little bonus content. I'm Anastasia Bowden. And I'm Elizabeth Slattery. This week on Dist, it's a bonus episode. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. Well, Elizabeth, as you know, this week, I before we get into the opinions, I just want to point out that this week, the justices heard oral, oral, oral argument in the Cuss and Cheerleader case, and I highly recommend it for all. I don't know if you listened, but it was with Our Lady, Lisa Blatt, even though we I think- We love Lisa. We love yes, you. We're not we love worthy. Her. We are not worthy, even though I think she's on the wrong side of this. I'm sorry, Lisa. I still love you. We stand you. You are our icon, but I think 100%. you're on the wrong side of it. But anyway- Everyone should listen to it because it's a really interesting case. And Lisa is straight fire, especially in her rebuttal. So go listen to that. But talking about dissents at the Supreme Court, let's talk about Jones v. Mississippi. All right. So the facts of this case are that a boy who had recently turned 15 killed his grandfather in an altercation. And while they stabbed him with a kitchen knife. That is correct. And then I think that one broke and he got another one? It's true. Yeah. If you were writing the opinion, you'd be writing the majority because that's how the majority starts out. It's like, let's just go in there with all the gruesome details. Uh, we just need to have all the facts out there. The dissent, like me, is like, let's focus on the legal issues and just gloss over some of that nasty knife part. Uh, but anyway, so he did. He murdered his grandfather. Because they got in a fight. Because he had a girl in his bedroom, and the grandfather didn't like that, I guess. Right. Anyway, continue. Let's get to the law. Let's do the law stuff. So while the case is pending, you know, the prosecution of the minor, the Supreme Court held in a case called Miller that mandatory lifetime sentences without parole for individuals under 18 violate the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. So the case goes back and the judge decides in this child's case, in Jones's case, that it's going to impose a life sentence without parole anyway, just discretionarily. It won't it won't do it mandatorily, but it's just as a matter out of its own discretion, it's going to do so anyway. And at the Supreme Court, Jones is saying that based on that Miller case and another case uh, out of the Supreme Court called Montgomery versus Alabama, that... Life sentences without parole can only be imposed where the court either makes a separate factual finding of permanent incorrigibility or, at the very least, the court provides an on-the-record sentencing explanation that implicitly finds that the child is permanently incorrigible. And that's because in Montgomery versus Alabama, it said that, you know, given that 
you can only impose these life sentences discretionarily. It should be reserved for cases where the facts indicate um, that the minor is permanently incorrigible. How many times can we say that word during this incorrigible. podcast? Incorrigible. Incorrigible, pardon me. And uh, Jones, that didn't happen, right? There was no finding of incorrigibility. Right, there was no finding. And so when up at the Supreme Court now, Jones is saying, no, you need to make that finding. And the majority says, no, a court need not make that finding. It's not necessary under the Eighth Amendment. Um, the discretionary sentencing is both constitutionally necessary and constitutionally sufficient. That's all you need to satisfy the Eighth Amendment. Sotomayor is like, no, 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 no. That's not what we said in Miller and Montgomery. That's right. She just reads it totally differently. And she's joined by Breyer and Kagan. Uh, I like the way that she starts her opinion. So, you know, the majority starts her opinion by talking about how terrible the crime is. And Sotomayor starts her opinion by saying, today the court guts Miller versus Alabama and Montgomery versus Louisiana. It says a sentencer never need determine even implicitly whether a juvenile convicted of homicide is one of those, quote, rare children whose crime reflect irreparable corruption. And she said that that is necessary, that finding is necessary, because we all know that kids are less mature, they're more susceptible to uh, societal pressure and what have you, and that this is a really important backstop on uh, sentencing children, essentially, who should have a shot outside of jail even when they commit rather heinous crimes. So, so here's what, what I is. thought was, oh, sorry. Here's no, what I thought was interesting ahead. about Sotomayor's dissent. So she says, there, here's a quote, how low this court's respect for stare decisis has sunk. Now it seems the court is willing to overrule precedent without even acknowledging it is doing so, much less providing any special justification. So Justice Sotomayor is joining Justice Kagan's crusade for stare decisis. Leave no precedent behind. Save them all. You know what's funny about that is uh, Justice Thomas in his concurrence kind of says the exact opposite, right? He says, rather, the majority strains to read Montgomery as not requiring uh, a factual finding of permanent incorrigibility. But instead, they should just acknowledge that that's what it did and it is wrong. And they should abandon that case instead of straining to, to save it. Um, so he's demonstrating his usual, you know, he has no reticence about uh, abandoning stare decisis and uh, doing what's right. Yeah. So he just concurred in the judgment because he is he is not having Miller and Montgomery. Um, I thought so. I saw this interesting article by friend of the pod, Josh Blackman. He had an interesting perspective on a passage from Sotomayor's dissent. So she says at one point. Sentencers should hold this court to its word. Miller and Montgomery are still good law. Sentencers are thus bound to continue applying those decisions faithfully and use their discretion to separate those juveniles who may be sentenced to life without parole from those who may not. And so Josh says, Sotomayor is basically telling lower court judges to ignore the Jones ruling. And if that happens, he says the court can just use its shadow docket. Shadow docket to summarily reverse uh, and not have to hear another one of these cases unless it presents a new issue. So I thought that was kind of interesting. 
One other sort of outside commentary I saw, another friend of the pod, Ed Whalen, he pointed out that the majority in Jones vindicated the very last opinion that Justice Scalia wrote before his death, which was a dissent in Montgomery v. Alabama. Okay, next up, Texas versus California. And no, it's not that one. It's not the Affordable Care Act. This was a, a case, a, a motion Texas brought to the court uh, to file a bill of complaint against California over California's ban on state-funded travel to Texas and other states that have laws that California says are discriminatory against LGBT individuals. And as a result, some states have passed sort of retaliatory bans on state travel to California. So this is kind of a problem. Well, Texas raised a number of novel constitutional claims, arguing things like California's ban violates the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the Fourth, um, not the Fourth Amendment, of Article 4. I'm usually thinking of P or I, not P and I, but this is uh, not from the 14th Amendment. Uh, anyway, the Commerce Clause and the Equal Protection Clause. So the court turned Texas away and said, nope. But Justice Alito dissented, joined by Justice Thomas, and it's not why you might think. So this is all about the Supreme Court's original jurisdiction. So to give you a little background here, the vast majority of cases that the Supreme Court hears invoke what's called its appellate jurisdiction. So that's where a case is heard by a lower court, usually more than one lower court, and then the losing party asks the Supreme Court for review. So there are a few types of cases that invoke the Supreme Court's original jurisdiction, including cases between states. Basically, the idea is that state courts can't be trusted to be impartial in disputes involving their state against another state. And the same goes for district and appellate courts located in particular states. So the Constitution says that the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction in cases involving states and then federal law. The Judiciary Act of 1789, to be specific, says the Supreme Court shall have not just original but exclusive jurisdiction over controversies between two or more states. So it's SCOTUS or bust for the states. But since 1976, the Supreme Court has decided that when the Constitution and the Judiciary Act say shall, they actually mean may. And going back to a case called Arizona v. New Mexico, the court turned away an original action, pointing to its increasing duties with its appellate docket as justification. So Justices Thomas and Alito are not having that. And they've protested a number of times when the court has done this. Let me hit you with some facts. Hit him. Longtime SCOTUS watcher Marsha Coyle broke this down in a piece um, for the National Constitution Center. So she points out that from 1789 to 1959, the court issued written opinions in just 123 original actions, which is like the equivalent of two years worth of cases from the court's appellate docket. So not that many cases over that large period of time. Since 1960, the court has received fewer than 140 motions for an original action and denied about half of those. So these original actions tend to involve things like interstate water compacts and boundary disputes. Thrilling. And they can drag on for years. In fact, the court issued an opinion last December 
in an original action that was filed in 1974, the if you can believe it. justice are slow. <laughs> yeah. So notably, if all of this sounds vaguely familiar, uh, Texas tried to challenge the presidential election last year by filing an original action against Pennsylvania, Georgia, Wisconsin, and Michigan uh, to require those states to appoint new electors. The court was not having that and denied Texas's motion to file that bill of complaint. Alito dissented, joined by Thomas, explaining that the court just doesn't have discretion not like to deny these filings. But to be clear, he said that he would not have granted the relief that Texas was seeking, like forcing the states to appoint new electors. So I think this is an example of the justices tend to develop sort of pet causes, like Justice Kagan and Starry Decisis. She's the biggest cheerleader for Starry Decisis. Um, and this is definitely Alito and, and Thomas's um, pet project. Um, Alito has said in, you know, in another one of these, dis these dissents that the court is basically leaving states in the lurch without any judicial forum. Um, but with only two justices interested in this, I'm not expecting to see any major change. Any major change. <laughs> That's a mouthful. Um, but be on the lookout for future dissents from Alito and Thomas because they will be keeping their vigil for original actions. You know what I think, Elizabeth? What? I don't like that the court is denying these uh, petitions based on original jurisdiction on mm -hmm. the theory that they don't have enough time and it would take away the time that they have for other, quote, more important things. Because I feel like I'm very sensitive to this right now because that's why they want to pack the court. They're like, let's add some justices because purportedly they need to do more work. That's the cover that that the court packers are giving right now, right? And so I feel like this just adds fuel to the fire. Or maybe I shouldn't have brought it up. I've just given fuel to the fire. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, they just, you know, I mean, suck it up. They hear fewer cases today than they did 50 years ago. And, and 50 years ago, they were hearing r more original actions, too. So I'm sorry. Maybe hire some more law clerks, but don't. Hire us. Yeah, hire us. You could do we'll like a hundred more free. cases. We'll, we'll do it for free. We'll do all the original action cases. Give me your water disputes and boundary disputes. Um, okay, shall we move on to the final dissent we want to talk about? Let's do it. It's hot off the presses. Get ready for some hot takes, people. Hot takes. <laughs> Super hot. <laughs> we have a new opinion from SCOTUS that just came out a couple of hours before we were we are recording this episode and good news y'all there's a dissent so it is a 6-3 opinion in niz chavez versus garland and the court reversed a lower court ruling that limited non-citizens access to cancellation of removal in deportation proceedings so you hear 6-3 and you're probably thinking Oh, it's all the justices appointed by Republicans versus all the justices appointed by Democrats. But no, it's not. You would check wrong. out this lineup. Gorsuch for the majority, plus Thomas, Breyer, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Barrett. Kavanaugh wrote a dissent, which the chief and Alito joined. Okay, so I'll just do a quick summary and then we'll get hot takes. 
I don't have that many hot takes on this. Okay, so here's what this is all about. Uh, federal immigration law dealing with non-citizens removal proceedings includes something called the stop time rule. And that forecloses the availability of a certain type of discretionary relief called cancellation of removal. This is lots of fancy phrases. So a non-citizen can apply for cancellation of removal to receive permanent resident status if they've been in the country continuously for 10 years. But under the stop time rule, the non-citizen's period of continuous residence stops once he or she receives notice to appear from Add the notice. A notice. Yeah, well, we'll get into that. Mm, receives know. a notice to appear for removal proceedings. So this is the third time in like three years that the court has had a case dealing with the stop time rule. And uh, so Niz Chavez was, is a non-citizen the non-citizen that brought this case, received two documents from the government, one saying he was being charged as removable because he was unlawfully in the country and would have to appear before, um, before an immigration court, date TBD. The second document notified him of the date and time. So I'm cribbing this from SCOTUS blog, but basically Gorsuch adopts a rigid interpretation of the federal law that requires the government to serve a single document with the information such as date and time of the hearing um, in order to trigger the stop time rule. So the statute says, quote, a notice to appear. And Gorsuch reads that to mean a single document. But Kavanaugh dissents and is like, nope, that's not right. That may be the literal meaning of a notice, but the plain meaning of a notice is actually the phrase written notice. A notice equals written notice, which does not have to be a single document. And here's my hot take. I don't think this is a hot take. It's a lukewarm take. Um, this is classic Gorsuch versus Kavanaugh, literal, literal, literal textualist versus plain meaning textualist. And I kind of love it when we see these internecine disputes uh, among textualists. I think it's really fascinating and really deflates the argument that the justices just vote based on, you know, their their policy preferences and the party that they were, you know, appointed by. Do you have any lukewarm or, or hot takes? Yeah, it's only hot because it's recent. It's not hot because it's interesting, I guess. But um, yeah, I have to agree with that, that this whole case, I think, sort of destroys some of the preconceptions the public's uh, misconceptions about the Supreme Court, for example, that everything comes down to partisan politics, because clearly it does not. And secondly, that textualists are a monolith who all think the same way and only think that way because they care about the outcome of the case and that it, it fits with their policy preferences. And here, here we see this disagreement that we have seen before between Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, I think, which we'll continue to see. Um, and I just I love this line from Kavanaugh. I mean, I I I don't have strong feelings about this case. I I I mean, in terms of interpretation, I probably agree with the majority, and I'm comfortable with the outcome. But I just love this line from Kavanaugh in the dissent, which says, "In ordinary speech, a as in a notice, a a is not a one size fits all word." I'm like, okay, that's creative. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I, I agree with you. My hot take is that I agree with you. Well, as Justice Elena Kagan likes to say, we are all textualists now. Sure are. Are you all ready for another edition of 
Name that descent. Elizabeth, I picked these ones especially for you. They are specially curated. Um, so let's see how it goes. Oh boy. Bring it on. Okay, starting out. I, I actually switched the order of this quote, but you'll see why. It's because I want I didn't want to just say the thing. Let's just get to it. Okay. Imagine that a university sends around a bulletin reminding every professor to take the interests of graduate students into account when setting office hours, but that some professors teach only undergraduates. Would anybody reason that the bulletin implicitly presupposes that every professor has graduate students so that graduate students must really mean graduate or undergraduate students? Pure applesauce. Well, that's Justice Scalia. And it's uh, King V. Burwell. Yay! Yay! I don't know. That's my UN music. King V. Burwell, that is one of the most famous dissent lines, I think, uh, from the truly, truly the great dissenter, Justice Scalia, who has many such lively lines. The, one of the kings of dissents. King, as in King V. Burwell. I like that pun. Mm. Didn't even mean to. <laughs> okay, so next dissent we have here. When an employer makes a decision of such open and definitive character, an employee can immediately seek out an explanation and evaluate it for pretext. Compensation disparities, in contrast, are often hidden from sight. Mm, that's Ginsburg in Lily Ledbetter versus Goodyear. Excellent. Ding, 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 ding. Yes, and as we all know, especially as a callback to our very first episode, uh, her dissent is considered instrumental in getting Congress to act and to uh, change the statute of limitations for pay discrimination claims. All right, last dissent here. Let's see, can she go three for three? I believe she Ooh. can. The argument that the actions of public officials must not be subjected to judicial scrutiny because to do so would have an inhibiting effect on their work is but a more sophisticated manner of saying the king can do no wrong. Uh, I just read this one. Which one is it? Um, you can do it, I believe. Uh, I'm going to get it wrong, and I know what it is in the recesses of my mind. Um, well, we know you know what it is. Is it... Do you want a hint? Yeah, it's uh, the author is a wild man, if you will. <laughs> oh, it's Wild Bill Douglas. But what was the case? What was the case? The king can do no wrong. Well, I'll tell you anyway. Should I tell you? It's Pearson versus Ray. Oh, it's Pearson versus Ray. <laughs> Duh. I was like, why is this so familiar? Pearson versus Ray, one of the first cases to establish the qualified immunity doctrine. And we will uh, investigate it more in one of our future episodes. Spoiler alert, it's coming up soon. But excellent job, two out of three. Thank you. We hope everyone enjoyed our little bonus episode, or a dissental, if you will. And so be sure to let us know if you want more bonus content like this. And check back soon for our next episode, which we already told you is about qualified immunity. Uh, been in the news a lot lately. Thanks for listening to DIST. 
please subscribe wherever you listen. Oh, this is awkward. Is this awkward for us to do this? Oh, well. Thanks for listening to Dist. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and we would love your feedback. So send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out Dist. 